several years ago as my family, as we were all leaving Fort Smith to return to Northwest Arkansas, we were saying our goodbyes to Wendy's grandparents, my children's great-grandparents. And the custom was for everyone to take turns hugging. You've heard me say that before. We were, were huggers, and uh, we were hugging and saying, I love you, and then we would all jump in the car and, and head back. And on this particular trip, um, when my daughter, uh, Anna Kate, who was 10 at the time, got in the car, she announced to everyone, Mommy Ann told me I was her most favorite, to which my 13 and 15-year-old boys in the back both responded with, um, What? Uh, and she then said, well, sh she says that to all of us, right? And they looked at each other and then looked at her and went, no. Um, and of course, that's a story that we now tell and we laugh about every time that we get together. And Anna, usually at some point in our gathering, will take the time or the perfect opportunity to say, well, I was Mommy Ann's favorite. And then one of the boys will say, well, Mom was, or I was Mom's favorite. And the other says, well, Dad was, you know, I was Dad's favorite. And uh, we look at them and say, we don't have favorites, and then they in harmony say whatever, right? Um, we've all grown up in those environments, right? We've grown up in environments where favorites may exist, but s seldom, if ever, are they uh, mentioned or described or identified. Um, at school, we called them teacher's pets. Um, sometimes the label was earned. Uh, based on the behavior of the individual that was seeking that attention. Sometimes it was just bestowed upon the student. Um, you know, that preferential treatment that the teacher always gave was just recognized by everybody in the room, and, and the teasing was relentless. Um, so much so that some enjoyed the attention, of course, but others would try to get rid of the, the tag and would act in some way as to try to get into trouble, you know, some sort of negative behavior, and then only to have the teacher reinforce what everyone already knew, uh, and then show leniency that no one else in the room would have received had they done the same thing. Playing favorites is typically discouraged by most HR departments don't, that you work in. Uh, it's it's um, something that principals don't want teachers to do. And it's because it can create toxic environments. Um, and depending on the underlying motivation, depending on the uh, cause of the favoritism, it can even be dangerous if not illegal. And James says that in the church it's no different. He's very clear. He's got an unequivocal stance that unequal inequitable treatment of others, whether we call it favoritism, partiality, or discrimination, is, is not to be named in the church. It's, it's to have no place in the church, period. The, he gives no qualifiers. The bottom line is Christians don't play favorites, particularly within the assembly as we're gathered together. And James says that that's because showing partiality isn't simply, in the words of Alec Motier, a failure to conform to a desired religious pattern of behavior. It is to deny our faith. That's strong. Conversely, when we 
don't show partiality, and when we're, we're not equi- or when we are equitable and equal in our treatment of others, James says that we're actually exhibiting our faith. So those are the two points we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at first in verses one to seven, denying our faith, and then from eight to thirteen, we're going to look at exhibiting our faith. There is an outline in the back in the normal place in your bulletin, and children, your words are in their normal place as well. You're listening for the words partiality, favoritism, discrimination. Those are the big ones, and then we've got poor, rich, faith, law, judgment, and Christ. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word, grant us the ability this evening to appraise and apprehend your truth. Would you awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us through the law? And then would you please refresh us and encourage us and comfort us as we hear as we see and hear Jesus and His gospel. As always, I am unfit for this task that you've called me to, and so I am in need of both your grace and your Spirit to fill me that I might do something good for you this evening. May that be so. I pray that you would allow me to communicate clearly and with fluency and fervency and grace. And it's in the name of Christ I pray these things. Amen. Now, Matt did a wonderful job of reading, but let's let's read these verses again. We're going to read verses 1 to 7 first, and then we'll come later to 8 to 13. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, ah, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become those and those who are poor thoughts? Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here in chapter 2, James not only marks the beginning of a new thought, he also continues and maintains his straightforwardness, but also his tender concern and care for uh, his brothers and sisters in the faith. I mean, he knows because of who they are and, and where they are that they're looking for places to live, right? They're looking to set up new residences. Uh, they're looking for work, and they're willing to take whatever job becomes available. Uh, they're, they, they've lost their extended family, so they're looking for new friends t- uh, to whom they can go when needs arise. And they've also uh, been excommunicated from their synagogues. And so they're looking for new places to worship. They're looking for groups of believers who are worshiping together, and they've found them in homes in and around their particular communities. And those who are hosting them uh, have been in those communities for a while. They're well-established, and they're also wealthy enough 
to have enough space to extend hospitality to what was believed to be around a hundred or so people at a time. And while this was a test of faith, as we mentioned in chapter 1, this was a test of faith for all of those involved, it was also an opportunity to be tempted to sin. And the particular sin that James is addressing here in chapter 2 is the sin of showing partiality. And again, it can be defined as showing partiality, it can be defined as favoritism or discrimination. But no matter what the word, the idea was the same. James had either heard or he simply knew, based upon the circumstances, that they were giving in to the temptation to give guests who were coming into the presence of the assembly this quick once-over, and then were making judgments about them and treating them differently based upon the external appearances or how they looked. And he says, because of your faith in Christ, because you're believers in Him, this should not be. And the illustration that he gives in verses 2 and 3 involved the temptation to play favorites based on clothing, the clothing the guests were wearing when they entered. He said, if someone walks in wearing a gold ring or in these fine clothing, it's really these bright colored clothes and these fine clothes, their wealth and their stature and their prominence were all on display, and they would, they were, it was leading to, or their clothes were leading to a great deal of favor and special attention. The red carpet would be rolled out, so to speak, and they were escorted to the finest seats in, in the courtyard or atrium. But if someone walked in and their hair was a mess, uh, and again, that shabby is the same word uh, we read in chapter 1, so they're wearing these old, grimy, mud-stained clothes full of holes, and they really looked as though they didn't deserve or weren't worthy to be in the presence of the assembly. And while they weren't turned away, they were pushed to the fringes, or even worse, they were escorted to to seats at the feet of the more prominent. And some, in the language is such that it kind of describes even being placed under the footstool. That's how low these positions were. And so what I want you to do is, that for, for context's sake, for us tonight, to put it in real time, let's, let's think about a couple of people who come into our presence tonight. One is Doug McMillan, and the other is one of the homeless population in our city. Okay? That's, that's what we have going on. Right, And James says, the favoritism shown the rich man is unacceptable. Um, and his exhortation is not, um, is not, is to not play favorites by judging others, to not play favorites based on external appearances. And he gives three reasons why in the remaining verses that we read through verse 7. First is in verse 4. He says, number one, it's wrong because of man's inability to judge impartially. Sinful man, as you well know, apart from the Spirit, cannot make distinctions clearly, fairly, and equitably. Our sinful, self-righteous attitudes and ideas and opinions always get in the way 
And when we make these judgments, we're simply comparing some to others. And in some cases, we're comparing some to ourselves. And what happens is when we're putting, when we're comparing, we're putting some on display. And when we're comparing them to ourselves, we're putting ourselves on display. When we compare one group to another and and show preferential treatment, we're considering them more glorious than someone else. Or when we're comparing them to ourselves, we're considering ourselves more glorious than someone else. And as James said in verse 1, the only one worthy of glory is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one in this room worthy of glory other than Him. He is the one that is to be put on display, right? Because He is the Lord of glory. He is the glorious Lord. So He alone is worthy of being put on display. No one else. Secondly, he says in verse 5, it's wrong because of God's ability to choose impartially. God set His love on those whom He has chosen based upon His own divine will and purposes that He alone knows. Our confession puts it this way, He has chosen according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. He has chosen them in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love. And then here it is, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving Him thereunto and all to the praise of His glorious grace. God does not show favoritism or play favorites in regards to who are recipients of His love and grace. He alone is righteous. He alone is just and able to treat people equally and equitably. He's chosen to do what no human being and no human institution is able to do, and that is to to unite people from all walks of life. He alone has chosen to save from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and from every socioeconomic class. So playing favorites is completely off limits because those who the world might write off as beyond His reach, He has chosen and reached out to and saved. I love how Douglas Moo puts it. He says, the New Testament suggests that God delights especially to shower His grace on those whom the world has discarded and on those who are not keenly aware of their own inadequacy. James calls on the church to embody similar ethic, uh, a similar ethic of special concern for the poor and the helpless. Which leads to the third reason in verse seven, in verses 5 to 7. James says it's wrong because it's just plain illogical to do so. In his specific example, James describes how illogical it is to elevate the rich 
and dishonor the poor. God has chosen to save those who are poor and to make them rich in faith. Christ Himself became poor that they might, in fact, be rich. God has chosen to make those who are poor partakers and heirs of His kingdom. It's a theme. Remember, it's a theme that we saw throughout Luke, was it not? Over and over again, Jesus had come to save the least, the last, and the lost. And so James says, why would you treat the poor contrary to how God has chosen to treat the poor? It doesn't make sense. By looking at the externals, we miss the internals. They may, not have, they may not have material possessions, but if they're in Christ, they possess a spiritual wealth that is immeasurable. They are rich beyond imagination. And then he says, not to mention the fact that the ones you're exalting are the exact ones who are causing the problems you're facing. They're the ones who are oppressing you. They're the ones who are taking you to court. They're the ones who are exploiting you. And they're using the system to their advantage. They're the ones who are persecuting you for your faith in Christ. They don't deserve to be favored over the poor. And and understand, he's not condemning the wealthy for their wealth. Not at all. He isn't even, he's not encouraging any kind of reverse discrimination, switching the oppressed for the oppressor and trying to make things right. He's he's exhorting them and us not to play favorites and show uh, partiality toward the rich at the expense of the poor. And so the bottom line is, he says, to show partiality is to deny the faith. You're denying your faith in Christ to do so. It's to deny who we are in Him. It's contrary, right? It's to act contrary to the honorable name of the one by whom we've been called. Our desire should be to give Him glory and to glorify His name above every other. We need to be asking ourselves, how can we show a family, family resemblance right, to God who is our Father and to the Son who is our sibling and our Savior, Lord and King? Which brings us to the, our second point, which is exhibiting our faith, found in verses 8 to 13, but I want to... First, read verses 8 to 11. He continues, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For everyone who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. 
Now, I'm sure there's at least one person in the room who's asking themselves, why is the heading exhibiting your faith rather than keeping the law? Because all I heard was keeping the law. And that's a fantastic question that I want to answer. James is clear. He says those who do not play favorites and do not show partiality are keeping the law, and they do very well. And he does say those who do show partiality and play favorites, they, they sin because they break the law, and the law condemns them as transgressors. It convicts them, which is not good. And what he doesn't do, what we don't see is him, him saying that this is an exhibition of your faith. Or does he? Let's look, let's dig in a little bit. But, but before we do, we need to lay a little groundwork. I want us to go back for just a moment to the book of Exodus to get our feet under us a little bit. I want us to remember that back in verses 2 through 9 of Exodus chapter 6, that God made a definitive statement to Moses. He made a, de- a definitive statement regarding both his desire and his promise to redeem his people out of bondage in Egypt. Then in Exodus chapter 12, and we heard also from our Old Testament reading tonight that God made good on His promise, and He delivered His people, and He redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb. What we often overlook is what happened prior to chapter 6, and we miss what happens in chapter 3, because in chapter 3, God promises Moses that He's going to meet him on Mount Sinai. And that happened between the Exodus and them arriving in Canaan. Listen to chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, where God said to Moses this, "'Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt.'" But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It is the mountain of the Lord. It's also known as Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. That happened in chapter 3, he makes a promise in chapter 6, he delivers in chapter 12, and what we realize is that Sinai was a planned stop on the way to Canaan. And it's during this stop that God gave Moses the moral law. So we know that those who have been redeemed by the Lamb were to then live in obedience to the law. In that order, redemption was secured by God's promise, not by the performance of the people. And having been redeemed, obedience to the law was then expected. But the question is, if we're not saved as a result of our performance, what's the purpose of the law? And the answer is that the law was put in place to expose our sin. You'll remember from our study of Galatians chapter 3 that Paul says that the law was put in place to give our sin a name, right? To call it what it was, even to provoke it and to egg it on. I mean, it antagonizes us, right? 
And it wasn't just to identify our sin, but it was to show how desperate we are because of it. It reminds us of our lack of holiness. It reminds us of our lack of righteousness before a holy and righteous God. And that doesn't make the law contrary to the gospel. It makes it complementary to the gospel. Because it not only points out our sin, it also points us to our Savior. Paul says the law's purpose, if you remember, again, our study, it is to guard us in a restrictive sense. Not to let us escape the reality of our sin that it points to and, and, and so that we can't escape the reality of our inability and lack of power to overcome it. Its purpose is to continually over and over again to point us to our need for and a desire for deliverance that the law itself cannot at all provide for us. It has no power and it's something that we cannot achieve on our own. So it points to Christ because our justification or our being made right with God and our uh, sanctification, which is our growth and grace, are both only possible by faith alone in Christ alone. And so the more we look at the law, the more we realize how significantly we fall short of God's standard of holiness and righteousness. The more we look at the law, the, the more we realize how sinful we are and how great our need really is. But also, the more we look at the law, the more we're pointed to Christ as well. The more uh, the law leads us, right, the law leads us to our only hope. We're led to a place of understanding that our salvation is in the hands of God and that we've received it only, in the only way possible, by promise, by faith alone in Christ. And as a result, those who are in Christ look to the law and see it not as a way of salvation, but a means by which we love and serve our King. The obedience the law demands is not something that we are coerced into or frightened into, but something that we willfully and gratefully pursue out of gratitude for what has been done for us, gratitude for our salvation that we received by promise through Christ. As one pastor has said, we become better in our obedience to the law when, we grateful, uh, when grateful joy is our motive. It leads us to endurance in our obedience rather than fearful compliance. Now, we needed to go there, and I want to read 8 through 11 again, okay? He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James says the royal law or the moral law that was given at Mount Sinai, that was given by the king, and the king gave it to the citizens of his kingdom, and the king summarized 
the law in this way, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so James says, if you do that, if you, if you don't play favorites and don't show favoritism, you, that is one way for you to show that you love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of many ways that you can love your neighbor as yourself. And this is something, he says, that you should desire as, as a kingdom citizen. This is something you should desire to do because royal subjects desire to submit to the honor of the king. But then he says, know this. Subjects not only have a desire to fill the royal law, they also are obligated to keep the royal law. And if they play favorites, he says, he's telling them, if you play favorites, you aren't keeping it, you're breaking it. And, he says, you're breaking all of it. Because the same king who said, don't show partiality, also said, love your neighbor as yourself, also said, do not commit murder, also said, do not commit adultery. The law, James is saying, the law is just as indivisible as God is indivisible. There's no picking and choosing what to keep and what not to keep as far as the law is concerned because the totality of the law reflects the totality of the character of God. And so why don't we, why don't we need to and we're actually told not to create images of God? Because He has revealed Himself completely and thoroughly in His law through what He has spoken. And any attempt on our part to physically represent him only diminishes who he is. The royal law, the moral law, reveals him perfectly. And we as kingdom citizens are obligated to keep it. But now let's listen to the good news. Right? We need to hear the good news in verses 12 and 13. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The same law that James just called the royal law, he now calls the law of liberty. And if you remember from our study last week, we said that's because James as a Christian is looking at the law, now looking at the law, in light of it having been fulfilled in Christ. Christ took the curse of the law upon Himself and paid the penalty of our law breaking through His perfect obedience and sacrificial death upon the cross. That means for those who have faith in Him, the law has been, in the words of Ken Riddlebarger, transformed from a standard of condemnation because of our failure to perfectly obey the law into a law of liberty which reveals to us the will of God. Let me say that again. For those who are looking to Christ for their salvation, have faith in Him, the law has been transformed from a standard of condemnation 
into a law of liberty which reveals to us the will of God. Therefore, what James is saying is that we shouldn't act like lawbreakers and play favorites. We're to exhibit our faith as those who have been set free to obey and are now, by the way, now able to obey the law. Right? The good news is that we should not only desire to keep the law as kingdom citizens, or that we're obligated as royal subjects to keep the law, the good news is that we are now able to keep the law. Not perfectly, of course. Unable to perfectly keep it. That is why we need Jesus. But we are capable. That's why we can hear James say, be doers, not just hearers. He's not calling us to do something we're unable to do. So when James says, when we play favorites and show partiality or discrimination against others, he says we're acting without mercy. And those who don't show mercy won't be shown mercy. But those who show mercy and refuse to play favorites and refuse to discriminate will receive mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not saying that exhibiting mercy earns mercy. He's saying exhibiting mercy is a means by which we exhibit our faith that we already have in Christ and, the, and exhibiting the mercy that we've already received in Him. Our faith is in Christ who has fulfilled the law for us on our behalf, in our place, our faith is in Christ who died for every one of our violations of the law, past, present, and future. Our faith is in Him whose mercy triumphed over judgment. Therefore, we, brothers and sisters, we're free to obey. We're free and capable of exhibiting the mercy that He calls us to because we ourselves have been shown mercy. Out of the abundance of mercy, we're merciful. We are to act as those who have been shown mercy. A couple of things just to consider as we go. First, I want to address the particular point um, that James specifically makes and illustrates, okay? I know it feels like it's, it already has been, but I, I want to, just something I want to say about this. We, we are to refrain from playing favorites, showing partiality, and discriminating um, against anyone based on external appearances, specifically those that reveal um, socioeconomic status. And I want you to know I am thankful for... What I, what I believe has been um, exemplary modeling of this exhortation from our body. I really do. Um, it's been fantastic to watch. But I, I, we, need to, we need to remember, we need to recognize, which I think we do, we live in a community where the distinctions between the haves and the have-nots are growing exponentially day by day. 
And so we need to be on our guard. We need to be on our guard. We need to be paying close attention. We should remain keenly aware of the temptation that's there, and we should flee that temptation. We need to flee the temptation to fall into worldly patterns of economic favoritism and discrimination, particularly within the walls of the church. Um, And so I want to encourage you, right, even though you have been Example, I believe this, you've been examples to follow. And in Paul's words, this indeed, uh, this is indeed what you have been doing. Let me encourage you and urge you to do this more and more. Strive to excel still more in doing what we've been doing, okay? And second, I want to apply the principle of the pa- uh, passage more broadly and address another relevant issue for, here, uh, for us here in Northwest Arkansas, and that's because the word partiality in verse 1 is actually in the plural. And so um, that means that James is writing about acts of partiality, and almost every commentator, um, if not all commentators, agree that this suggests that James is referring to a wide range of judgments and distinctions. All, follow, all following, uh, sorry, falling under external differences, right? External appearances. But they believe that his illustration of clothing and rich and poor is just is a sample um, illustration of a more general idea. But I wanted us to, to be, um, to, to focus on, on what he had presented here. Um, so, verses 2 to 3 is not the only uh, application, or illustration or application of, of the prohibition, right? Um, and so, we are to refrain from playing favorites, showing partiality, and discriminating against anyone based on external or outward appearances, right, in general. And we've talked about based on uh, clothing and, and socioeconomic status, but we also need to be aware of this because we can, we can be tempted to make judgments and show favorites and show partiality based upon skin color. Um, and once again, I'm, I'm thankful for, and I'm going to say it again, for the exemplary models that you have been in this, in this way. But I think we also need to realize we live in a community that is growing more racially diverse Every day. Thanks be to God. Right. Um, and we need to acknowledge that our history of racism here in northwest and north central Arkansas isn't stellar. It's actually not something to be proud of at all. And we have to also admit that vestiges of that still exist. Therefore, we need to be on our guard. We need to consider this exhortation. We need to remain keenly aware of it. We need to flee the temptation to fall into worldly patterns of racial discrimination and favoritism. And we also need to avoid the worldly wisdom that seeks to answer racism with racism, particularly within the walls of the church. 
So let me, again, encourage you, even though you've been examples to follow, and I don't say that, I don't just toss that out there. I, I don't say that. I say that because it's true. You've been examples in that way, examples to follow. And in Paul's words, again, this is indeed what you have been doing. So let me just say again, let me urge you to do this more and more. Excel still more in that. And let me also say this, if you find yourself really struggling with these exhortations, if you're finding these exhortations difficult, can I encourage you, well, I shouldn't say that way, I am going to encourage you uh, to examine yourself, identify your sin, repent, and to ask the Lord to remove whatever prejudice it can be of the, the two that I mentioned, or again, under that broad heading of external appearances, fill in the blank, ask the Lord to replace that prejudice that may be present and replace it with, uh, or remove that prejudice and replace it with love for those who are different from you. I think that is something that we all can do whatever those differences may be. And again, particularly within these walls where Paul says Christ has broken down the walls between us. Within the walls of this place, there, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Right? We are all united in Christ. Regardless of what we look like, regardless of where we're from, regardless of where our experiences may lie. We're united to Him and we're united to one another. So finally, we need to recognize that countless numbers of people around us are from all walks of life need Jesus like we need Jesus. So let's not play favorites. Let's do the exact opposite and let's exercise hospitality. And what I mean is, we may, may we not only reach out, as, again, as we've been doing, may we not only reach out to those in our community who are different than us, but may we also let them know that they are welcome to join us here for worship and to join our fellowship as we enjoy our fellowship with Christ and with one another. We don't want anyone to think they shouldn't show up here. And we don't want anyone to feel unwelcome when they do. Let's be a help and not a hindrance to anyone who needs Christ. May we show mercy as we've been shown mercy that triumphs over judgment. Let us exhibit our faith in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.